0: Well, good evening. Everybody sees the countdown clock and starts getting quiet, don't they? So, Good to see you tonight. Glad that you're here. Welcome to our Bible study every Wednesday night. We gather and study God's Word together and we go, we go through a book. Uh, and so we're going through the book of Zechariah. We've been there for several weeks now. We've made it to chapter 3, verse 6. So take out your Bibles and that's where we'll begin tonight. Chapter 3, verse 6 of Zechariah and we will go through chapter 4 verse 7, which will be the completion of Zechariah's fourth vision, and we'll start looking at the first half of his fifth vision. And that's where we'll begin tonight. If you're joining us by live stream, we welcome you wherever you are and however you may be joining us and whenever you may be joining us. Sometimes people watch Thursday and Friday and Saturday or next week, but whenever you're watching, we're glad to have you with us as well. Let's pray together and we'll get started. God, thank you tonight for your word Thank you, Father, that it is truth, and we thank you that you've given to us in these pages. As we talked about last Sunday that Jesus said, not one jot, not one tittle of your word will, will fall away as long as the earth turns. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for that, knowing that what we're studying tonight is of eternal nature and will never change, and it's in, information that we need to know of how you dealt with your people so that we can know how you deal with us. So God, bless our time together tonight. May the Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, the title of our study is A New Day for God's People, from the uh, Old Testament prophet Zechariah. And as I said, we made it to chapter 3, verse 6. And as always, we begin with our quiz. I saw some of you out there cramming a little bit earlier. And so, but just uh, eight questions tonight to see if you remember some of the things we've talked about in the previous week. So let me ask the questions, answer them in your mind, or you can jot them down if you want, and then we'll go back and look at what the answers are. Question number one, this is so, it's embarrassingly easy, I'm sorry. Question number one, what does the name Zechariah mean? That's a layup, everybody should get that one, we ask the same question every week. What does the name Zechariah mean, if you remember that? Question number two How many Jews returned back to the land of Israel from Babylon? You remember we talked about most of the Jews remained in Babylon in bondage, but there was a remnant that came back to the land. How many of them does the Bible say returned back to the land? Question number three How long had the work of rebuilding the temple been stopped by the time Zechariah began to prophesy? You remember they got back to the land, they laid the foundations of the temple and the foundations of the altar so they could offer sacrifice for their sins again. They got discouraged and they stopped and they stopped for how many years and then Zechariah started prophesying after that number of years. If you remember the number of years, that's the correct answer. Question number four, in vision number three, what did the man measure? He measured had a tape measure in his hand, and he measured something. What did he measure? You're looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate tonight. I don't know if... Uh... <laughs> All right, question number five. What was the name of the high priest who appeared in vision number four? Last week we talked about, what was his name? The high priest in, in the... Uh, fourth vision. Question number six. Who was standing beside the high priest in vision number four? Someone was standing beside him. Who was it? Question number seven. What was wrong with the garments that the high priest was wearing in vision number four? Something was wrong with the garments he was wearing. What was it? And then the last question, number eight. What was written on the turban the high priest was wearing in the fourth vision? We ended last Wednesday night, had a turban on, and there was an inscription on it. What was written on the turban of the high priest in the fourth vision? All right, let's see how you did. Question number one. What does the name Zechariah mean? Yahweh remembers, absolutely. Yahweh remembers. They, God's people thought He'd forgotten them, but He hadn't. Yahweh remembers. Question number two: How many Jews returned back to the land of Israel from Babylon? Fifty thousand. Very good. All right. Question number three: How long had the work of rebuilding been stopped by the time Zechariah began to prophesy? Eighteen years. Y'all are doing great, man. This is these are A students here tonight. Eighteen years. Absolutely. Question number four, what did the man measure in the third vision? Jerusalem, measured the city of Jerusalem. God was uh, showing them it's going to be prosperous again and bustling again, which has been uh, today, it has been fulfilled today. And then let's see, question number five, what was the name of the high priest who appeared in the fourth vision? Joshua, absolutely. Not the prophet Joshua from from the book of Joshua, but the high priest named Joshua. Joshua was a very common name back in those days. A lot of people named Joshua because it simply means God saves. So it was a very common name. Question number six, who was standing beside Joshua the high priest in the fourth vision? Satan was standing there to accuse him. Absolutely right. Question number seven, what was wrong with the garments the high priest was wearing in the fourth vision? Filthy, dirty, they had excrement on them. Dirty, filthy garments, which is very unusual for the high priest. And then number eight, what was written on the turban of the high priest that they was wearing in the fourth vision? Holy to the Lord, absolutely. Some of you got all of them, that's good, that's good. Holy to the Lord was written on the turban of the great high priest in Israel, according to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. All right, well, good job tonight. Let's continue on looking now at the rest of of, of the fourth vision Zechariah had and look at the first of the fifth vision. Now, just as a reminder again, this is the background that helps you understand what we're going to look at tonight just a little bit better. A remnant of 50,000 Jews were allowed to go back to the homeland. They'd been uprooted from the homeland, taken to Babylon, what was known as the Babylonian Captivity, Seventy years is how long they stayed there. God then allowed them to come back. Most of the of the uh, Jews stayed in uh, in in Babylon. Some of them were in, the, in Assyria. Some in Moab. Some in Adam uh, Edom, rather. Some in Ammon. Some in Egypt. All different places. But most of them in Babylon. Fifty thousand of them came back. But when they got there, life was hard because everything's in rubble.s it just, It's in rubble because of. Of um, the, the whenever they were there last, the Assyrian army, Babylonian army had, had uh, just kind of burned everything, pillaged everything. So you have nothing but, but rubble to work with and not many people to work with. And most of the young people stayed in Babylon. They had jobs. They made a good life. That's all they knew, many of them. So it was mostly older people who had returned. So you're trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem with not many people, most of them older, and not many finances to do it with, and the crops had failed as soon as they got back. So, it was hard there, and they rebuilt the, the foundation of the city, rebuilt the altar, and then they stopped for 18 years. And then, of course, um, Zechariah called a prophesy, and God immediately gave him eight visions to encourage the people. Now, this is important for tonight. Once they got back, they had two leaders they didn't need very many more leaders because the city is in shambles the temple's in shambles they had two leaders number one they had a high priest named Joshua who would offer their the sacrifices for their sins and the second leader was a man by the name of Zerubbabel he came back with the 50,000 Ezra and Nehemiah those books talk about him he came back with them because he was a builder so, you got a builder and you got a high priest. And that's all you need because everything else is charred. It's just lying there. So, really, you don't need anything else but a builder and the high priest. So, Joshua and Zerubbabel were really the only two leaders. You may say, well, how did they know Zerubbabel was a builder? And why did he go back and it's interesting because really he was appointed by Cyrus. He's from the lineage of Judah in the Davidic line and became one of the leaders probably while they were there, the 70 years there. And so probably Cyrus recognized his leadership, promoted him to a higher rank, and then he was one of their leaders once they came back. So Zerubbabel and Joshua, the only two leaders that they have. That's important tonight because vision four is encouragement to Joshua, the high priest, And we're about to get to vision number five, which was encouragement to Zerubbabel, your other leader. So God wanted to encourage their leaders. Hang in there. I know it's tough, but hang in there. I have not forgotten you. So those are the two leaders. Now, vision number one, Zechariah had, we looked at, as a vision of horsemen. That was to encourage the people. Vision number two, four horns and craftsmen, showing that God's going to punish those nations who enslaved Israel. Vision number three, a man with a measuring line measured Jerusalem to show that the glory of the later years in Jerusalem is going to be greater than the first. And then last week, we started looking at the first part of vision number four, Joshua the high priest, encouraging their high priest to keep being faithful. Now, let's look at the first part of the vision where we left off last week. You remember vision number four. Zechariah looked up and saw the high priest standing before God, but his garments were filthy. They had they had dung all over them, and they're usually pure and white. And so they were just appalled. Oh oh no, he's standing before the Lord impure, and they're saying an angel was commanded to come and change the garments, and so they changed the garments. To, rep- to represent God's people had been in banished, but God now has taken them and forgiven them and cleansed them and clothed them in righteousness again. So it's kind of a symbol. Zechariah looked and says, wait a minute, well, he needs a clean turban too. So they took the old turban off and put the new turban on that said, holy to the Lord. So now he is, he is uh, clean and pure and holy to function as the priest of God again. That's where we ended last Wednesday night. So, tonight, look at letter A on your outline as we continue on. Fourth vision, Joshua, the high priest. to start looking at verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Now, after they changed his clothes and changed the turban, God told the angel to tell Joshua a message. He said, Joshua, as the high priest, if you do two things, I promise you three things. But you must meet the two conditions before I fulfill the three promises. What are the two conditions? Number one, you need to walk in my ways. Joshua, everything I tell you to do, you need to be obedient. So walk in my ways. Number two, the second thing is, you need to be faithful to what I've called you to do. I've placed you in a position of leadership. i placed you here to be a go-between for my people. Walk in my ways and be faithful to do what I've called you to do. If if you do those two things, make you three promises. Promise number 1, you will govern my people well. Promise number 2, you will have charge of the courts, the temple, and you'll keep them pure. And most important, promise number 3, I will give you access to God. Access to God. Now, obviously number three is the most important, isn't it? How do we have access to God today? Through Jesus Christ, right? In the Old Testament, the priest was the one that had access to God, but he didn't always have access to God. If he didn't do what God called him to do, he would not have access to God. We do through Christ, but he may or may not so he said, God, the angel told him, if you walk in my ways, be faithful to do what you're called to do. These are the promises I will make you. Now, if you look at our lives today as believers, that's what we must do as well. If we were, are faithful to do what God's called us to do, if we are obedient to all God's called us to do, commanded us to do, then he will make promises to us as well. I think a lot of believers today, they want God's promises, but they don't want to do what God's told them to do they need to do to get them. It's as if. If you do. If you don't, you don't get the promises of God. So I think today a lot of believers, they want to be disobedient. They don't want to obey all the commands of God. They want to pick and choose the commands of God. But they still want God's blessings and God's promises. It doesn't work that way. If you're obedient god makes promises to you but you must do what god has called you to do now here's what i find interesting listen what the angel told joshua if you walk in my ways keep my charge then you'll rule my house well you'll charge my courts you'll give you the right have access for me if you think back to the old testament earlier prophet joshua the one that replaced moses back in the book of joshua thousands of years, of years before this. No relation to this Joshua. But what he told him was similar. You remember that? You remember Moses died, Joshua was about to take over, and God told him in Joshua 1, 7, only be strong and courageous that you may observe to do all that the law of which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to the right. Do not turn to the left. If you don't, I'll prosper you in the way that you go. That sounds very similar to this, doesn't it? They're not related. It's not the same Joshua. They lived thousands of years apart. But the promise sounds almost the same. I thought that was interesting even though it's the wrong Joshua. Now, next, after Zechariah is seeing Joshua in this vision that he had one night. Remember, a vision is not a dream. dream happens while you're asleep. Vision happens while you're awake. So he was awake, and he was seeing this. After he heard what the angel said to Joshua, next he heard something else, and there were some other people around Joshua that he saw. Verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, verse 8, you and your friends who sat before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch." Confusing, isn't it? Let's see if we can wade through this a little bit. Who are those men sitting around Joshua that appeared to be called friends? Well, the word friend there is interesting. It's the word "mophith," which means symbol, uh, taken of symbols of future events. They appear to be other priests. Did Israel have other priests at the time? We don't know. They don't appear to. They only needed a high priest. So we don't know who these other priests are. They were friends of, of Joshua sitting in front of him. And God called them symbols, tokens of what's going to happen in the future. That word's used in Isaiah 8:18 8, also. So they seem to be representative of the priesthood, but something that's going to happen in the future. And God said that He planned to bring into the picture, my servant, the branch." Who's that? Messiah. It's Jesus. Absolutely. Now he introduces Jesus, the Messiah to come. Double title, servant and branch. Jesus was called a servant, Isaiah 42 through 53. Jesus would call, was called a branch that would be coming, Psalm 132, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, Isaiah chapter 11. So Jesus has been called both. The Messiah, he said, is going to come. I'm going to send him to you. He will be a servant and he will be your branch. Now, do you remember after Jesus came, John chapter 15, he was was teaching the disciples one day. And do you remember what he said? He says, you are the vine and I am the branch. And he used the analogy of vines and the vine dresser and the branch. And apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said, John 15, verse 5. And he used that analogy that you have to be connected to the vine to have a relationship with the vine. Otherwise, you don't have the power from the vine. So if you're not connected to Christ, if you're not saved, you don't have the power of Christ in you and dwelling in you. And so he was called a branch after he came. So, servant and branch, two titles here, Zechariah gave him. Now there are some Bible scholars, Merrill Unger was one, and others who very well respected scholars who say these two titles, servant and branch, are representative of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. First coming... He came as a servant. He came lowly. Second coming, the branch who comes in power and reigns in power. Some people say that the second coming of Jesus is not really mentioned in Zechariah. Other scholars say that it is. And those that do say here's one of the places it is. Because these two titles refer to Jesus' first advent and his second advent His first coming and his second coming. So, in this vision, Zechariah sees Jesus now introduced into the picture. Go to verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Okay, there are several things there that's really confusing, right? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Let's see if we can break it down. Zechariah's looking, sees Joshua the high priest, sees friends sitting around him, sees the title, the branch, and the servant show up. And then he sees before Joshua a rock or a stone. And this stone, he says, sitting before Joshua, has seven eyes on the stone. Okay, it's getting a little more bizarre now, isn't it? And engraved on the stone is an inscription. But we're not told what the inscription is. Something's inscribed on the stone. And when the stone appears... God promised, I will remove all the iniquity of the entire land in one day. What on earth was he talking about? First, let's kind of break it down. Stones, or rocks, all throughout Scripture, are very common symbols. They're common symbols of God. God's called a rock. The psalmist, many times, referred refer to him as a rock. I, I, I flee to the rock who is higher than I. The rock, God is seen as a rock many times in the Bible as being secure and being strong and never failing. And somebody that's, that's rock solid to be, will be there for you. That's God. Jesus many times has been referred to as a stone. Um, the stone that Israel stumbled over. The rock of offense has now become the chief cornerstone we're told in the New Testament. So you see the analogies of rock and stone being analogies of God. And Jesus, many times in Scripture, we are told in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, that in the future, Jesus will be a rock that crushes the nations that reject him. So you've got this imagery of the stone being deity, or being God, or being Jesus. So immediately you have to look at that and you say, the stone before Joshua must be Christ. Or it must be God. That's not an eisegesis at all, because you see other places in Scripture, you let Scripture interpret Scripture, and so many other places it appears to be the stone. Why did the stone have seven eyes? Well, usually in Scripture, eyes are symbolic of knowledge, of understanding. We learn mostly through our eyes, mostly through our eyes. Seven is always a number of perfection through Scripture. So it appears to be the understanding, the perfect understanding, God will give to His people at the end time. The perfect understanding, the knowledge that will come. What's engraved on the stone? We don't know. We're not told. Now, the early church fathers believed that the inscription on this stone in Zechariah chapter, chapter 3 were the wounds of Christ. They were engraved on his hands. The wounds is Christ. The, the wounds that, that were... So we don't know that. That's why the early church fathers interpreted this. But we're not told what was engraved on it. Now here's one side note that's kind of interesting. Back in biblical days, um, the Babylonians and the Assyrians primarily, they did this. In order to perpetuate their legacies, they would they would write something on a stone and bury it underneath the buildings that they built or the kingdoms that they built or the palaces that they built. Just in days to come, if their kingdom was ever destroyed, they would have a legacy that endured. We kind of do the same thing whenever we pour concrete, don't we? I and mean, we kind of write the date on it or you put your hand in it or the dog walks across it or something. And you've got in your concrete these permanent reminders of a date or a handprint or something like that. They, they kind of did something similar in those days. Babylonians and Assyrians primarily, they would, they would bury stones with something inscribed on them at the bottom. Some Bible scholars believe it's a reference to that. God is saying, I'm doing a work that will be here from generation to generation to generation. It's going to be here a while, and that work is Christ. That's possible. We don't know for sure, but some Bible scholars say that's what the inscription meant. So, what does he mean now? So, the rock, seven, number of perfection, the eyes, knowledge, rock, Christ, uh, and maybe the inscription is Christ's wounds. We don't know that for sure. Maybe. But what does he mean when he says, I will remove the iniquity of the land in only one day? Calvary. The cross. In one moment, one afternoon, Jesus hung on the cross. And at that one moment, the iniquity of the entire world rolled away in one day. So those of us who are believers know exactly what he's talking about. The iniquity, our iniquity, where the where our sins were, as the old hymn says, were rolled away in one day. Now, how do Jews interpret that? Since Jews don't in, believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they believe he was a historical figure, but they don't believe he died for the sins of the world. How do Jews interpret it? What do they mean, the iniquity of it rolled away in one day? Obviously, very obvious to us. Jews say, well... Nobody knows what this means except God. That's a pretty good cop-out, isn't it? Nobody knows what that one day is but God. Of course we know. It's revealed in the New Testament. It was the day Jesus died on the cross. Because that's when our iniquity was rolled away. So, in summary, we see in these verses, Jesus being a servant comes to do the will of the Father. A branch, the Davidic descendant, who would rise to power and glory. And a stone, who would be a rock of stumbling, rock of offense, bringing judgment to the nations. Christ is seen in all of these. Now look at verse 10, we'll close this vision. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you, Israel, will invite his neighbor to come under his vine And under his fig tree. What's he talking about? Well, the Lord of hosts in that day is going to invite you Israelites to invite his neighbor. Who are Israel's neighbors? Gentiles. Non-Jews. Us. I'm not a Jew. Me. I will be invited to come along with Israel to enjoy the blessings of God, even though I'm not Jewish. And everyone, neighbor, will be invited under his vine. And under his fig tree. Now that phrase, under his vine and under his fig tree, is a proverbial expression used many times in scripture. It's used in First Kings 425, used in Second Kings 1831, used in Micah 4, 4. It's used here, under his vine and under his fig tree. And what it means is prosperity and peace as never before. The imagery came because after the harvest. When they would harvest the grapes, or, or the harp, they were ready to be harvested. Crops are ready to be harvested. Grapes are ready to be harvested. They've grown up. They would they would camp out. The Israelites would under the shade, protecting it so armies don't come in uh, the night before you're about to to, to uh, harvest and steal your harvest. So you actually stayed out under vines and under fig trees watching. But it was a time of peace and prosperity and happiness and joy. Yeah, I mean, you, you, kid, you get a glass of tea and you kick back and you tell stories. It's, it's a joyous time because the harvest is here. And in the, it's pictured all through Scripture as a time of peace and prosperity and joy and happiness and everybody being together because the harvest has come. And here is a beautiful verse for Gentiles. In that day, Israel will invite Gentiles in Christ to find a time of peace and joy, prosperity in Christ. We have equal access to God as do they. What a beautiful picture for Gentiles like us. But Jews, how did they miss that? They never saw themselves as wanting Gentiles in the kingdom. They still don't want Gentiles in the kingdom. They loathe Gentiles still to this day. How did they miss this? Because they would pick and choose what they wanted to hear. Don't be like that. Don't pick and choose what you want to hear. Pick and choose, or rather choose what God has revealed to us. So it's a beautiful verse in verse 10, that day when you and I will have peace and prosperity with God's people in his kingdom. Now let's go to chapter 4. The time we have left, we'll look quickly At the fifth vision, just a little bit about it, we'll go through the first seven verses for Zechariah's fifth vision, then we'll close. Verse 1, and the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who's wakened out of his sleep. Wait a minute, I thought dreams were sleeping and visions weren't. Well, he dozed off after the fourth vision. So those of you dozing off tonight, you're in good company. Zechariah, he, he dozed too. He wakened me. He said, Verse 2, what do you see? He said, I see, behold, a lampstand of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other's on the left. And I said to the angel that talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel said, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. We'll stop there. We'll see what he saw. Then we'll get to verses 6 and 7 before he closes the explanation. So Zechariah falls asleep after the fourth vision. The angel woke him up as a man awakened out of sleep. And he said, look, what do you see? He said, well, I see a golden lampstand. It's got a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps. The word lip literally means spout. So spout, seven spouts that came out from it. You're going, this is, this is bizarre. It's hard to picture. Well, let me help you understand a little bit better. In the tabernacle, the lampstand had removable lamps. At a lampstand, the lamp could be removed. It set in there to bear light. But then it could be removed and taken away and you could do different things with it. It was mobile that way. That's according to Exodus 25.31 in 1 Kings 7.49. It describes that. So the lampstand would support the light bearer, the lamp itself. Lampstands were supporters of the light. Fast forward to Revelation. You remember Jesus told the churches, if you don't do what I've called you to do, I'll remove your, your lampstand. Your lamp, your, your candle, your light. You also might, might remember Paul, First uh, Timothy 3.15, called the church the pillar in support of the truth. So the imagery is there, the lampstand, and then the lamp is there to, to, for the light. In this vision, the lampstand appears to refer to the temple in the Jewish community who were to be the light to the rest of the nations. The bowl on top of the lampstand contained the oil that would replenish the lamps to keep the lamps burning. What would have been unusual about this vision, the lampstands were made of gold. That was not the case in the tabernacle or in the temple. These here were were gold. And again, there were seven of them, the number of perfection. So you have these seven lampstands, seven lamps, You have the seven lips or spouts on each one of the lamps. It would have been very impressive as you saw it, one resting on the other. Now, what's interesting is archaeologists in Israel have uncovered lamps that look exactly like Zechariah described, with one exception. They all looked exactly as he described it, but they had one spout or one lip rather than seven, the only difference. So when he saw the seven, it would have been unusual. Why seven spouts? The spout provide the oil. And evidently what Zechariah saw was light that goes out from God's people with a continuous flow. The seven spouts, the oil never runs out because your light is continuous. Let's go down in verse, and we'll see uh, verse uh, 3, and you'll explain a little bit further. And beside these, there were two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and one on the left side of the bowl. Now, they didn't have olive trees in the temple or the tabernacle, but the olive trees were significant here. One of the most tedious duties of the temple service was the constant care you had to take of the lamps, of the golden lampstand. They had to continually be refilled with oil, clean the soot, trim the wicks. And so in this vision, these two olive trees were continually feeding through these seven spouts the oil to the lampstand continuously. What does oil do? What did oil do in Scripture? Well, in Scripture, oil was used as a lubricant. Oil was used to heal. Healing, that, oil that you would put on someone to heal them. It was used as light. Uh, oil was used as warmth. It was used to invigorate. They would pour oil when they anointed a king because it was refreshing. It showed, it showed God's uh, uh, symbol of God's power. It was adorned to polish metal. A lot of different uses for oil. And it seems to represent Joshua and Zerubbabel, two men who were going to provide light for God's people through rebuilding the temple and through offering sacrifices. So these two olive trees appear to be Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who would continuously be giving what God's people needed so they could be the light. Verses 4 and 5, Zechariah didn't know what it meant, so it's explained in verse 6. Verse 6, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Where are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace grace to it let me explain these two verses we'll close God wanted Zerubbabel to know your task of rebuilding this temple and rebuilding the city is enormous you don't have many people most of them are older that came back you don't have much money so you're going to rebuild it not by your power not by your might But by my spirit, says the Lord. And that became a motto for Zerubbabel in rebuilding the rest of his days. But folks, that's a good motto for you and me. It's not by your might or by your power. You can do hardly anything. It's by the spirit of God in you where things are accomplished. If the temple was to be rebuilt, it would not be because of an army of strong workers marched in and did it. Now, Solomon's temple, they did that. They brought in an army of young guys and strong guys and they worked around the clock and they got that first temple erected. But Not this one. Not by might. Not by which might mean a collective re, uh, collection of resources. Power was individual strength. Not by a collection of what you can do together or not by your individuals. It's by the Spirit of God is your power and strength. That's how you'll accomplish anything. You know, that's a great word for churches, isn't it? Because a lot of churches believe that the more collective resources you have, the better church you're going to be. Or the greater individuals you have leading out, the better you're going to be. Or the better pastor you have, the better church you're going to be. Or the better location where your church is. We have to relocate because better location, we can reach more people. Or the more money you have, it's not by the resources. And it's not by the individuals who lead out. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where the power comes from. That's where anything good is ever accomplished. The word spirit here is ruach. It means breath of God. Spurgeon said about this verse, he said, Oh, may God send us poverty to our church. May God send us a lack of means. Take away my power of speech. If it must be that I can only stand up and stammer every Sunday. If may only we have the power of the Spirit. Because that's where anything good's ever going to be accomplished. That's what this verse says. It's not by who you are and how powerful you are. Not who I am, how powerful I may be. It's by the Spirit of God that's where the work is accomplished. That's where he builds. And that's how he works. And then finally, look at that last verse, verse 7. The angel says, where are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. What was he talking about? Mountain of rubble. You had to know Zerubbabel, looking at this rubble everywhere, bricks and stones all piled up. You know, he had to be discouraged. How am I going to make anything out of this with, with people who aren't young anymore and not much money and not many of them to work with? How is this mountain going to be reduced, this mountain of rubble? And the promise was, before you, this mountain of rubble is going to become a plain. And whenever you put that, look at verse 7, that top stone on front, the very top stone that ends the building, the capstone to end it all, it will be placed there amid shouts of grace. We did it. Now, if you're a Zerubbabel, and Zechariah has this prophecy, and he sees this vision, that would encourage your heart. That would man, that would make you say, let's get back to building again. I know we put it on hold for 18 years. Let's gather who we got and let's rebuild again. And that's exactly what he did and exactly what happened. And you know what? What God prophesied came to pass. That mountain of rubble was all taken away. The temple was rebuilt. Jerusalem was rebuilt. And God's people on the very last stone went on top. They shouted and rejoiced. Ezra describes it. And they heard the rejoicing in the next cities nearby so exactly what was prophesied to encourage Zerubbabel is exactly what happened and it wasn't it, it wasn't accomplished because he had a great army of workers or a lot of resources it was accomplished because the Spirit of God empowered him to do it man that's great encouragement to us tonight you may be in a situation tonight where you don't have many resources and you don't have much strength but praise God he's got all the strength and all the resources that you need. Well, we will pick up next week with chapter 4 at the second half of the vision, beginning in verse 8. There's a little bit more to that fifth vision to encourage Zerubbabel, and we'll talk about that starting next week. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to see me afterwards or email me. I'll be glad to respond to them. Let's pray together, and we'll close. Father, thank you that all through Scripture you encourage your people. You encourage your leaders. You encourage those who are, who are looking at mountains of problems and mountains of debt and mountains of rubble and just mountains of everything. But Father, thank you again for reminding us that it's not by our might or our power, but it's by the Spirit of God that you accomplish things. So Lord, may you do that even this week. Encourage our hearts tonight as you encourage the Rubables as well. And Lord, may you be exactly who we need to be. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.